At first, I thought, maybe it's me. I'm the problem. I'm not thinking big enough. It took a lot. I'm not going to lie. And I take so much personal responsibility when really that's not for me to shoulder. And that's taken a lot of personal growth to realize what am I actually truly accountable for versus not. Hey, I'm Andrew Kaplan, and this is a show where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams. But the show isn't about growth tactics, strategies, or playbooks. There's enough content about that out there from other folks. This show is about the personal challenges, career adversity, and self-doubt that come when you work in growth roles at early-stage companies. It's a hard job. This show normalizes making mistakes and encountering adversity along the way. My guest today is Asia Orangio. Asia is the CEO and founder of Demand Maven where their team help SaaS founders and growth teams solve growth challenges. And Asia has a ton of good experience. She previously did marketing at two different 10X startups. She was a board member at Moz prior to that. And I was super excited to chat with Asia because my network kept telling me about how amazing she was and I hadn't had a chance to meet her yet. So I was super excited to have her podcast. And our conversation covered three really interesting challenges that Asia has encountered. The first is when she got really tough feedback from one of her mentors, someone that she trusted, who told her that she didn't have enough experience to go out on her own. So Asia shared this story and also why she ignored this feedback and advice from her mentor. The second thing we talked about is how she navigated starting a new role earlier in her career and instantly realizing that she would not be successful in this job based on the way it was structured and the goals that were set and how she didn't let that story define the rest of her career. The third thing that we talked about is how Asia manages her inner monologue or dialogue when she encounters unknown unknowns that used to leave her worrying. We covered a ton of interesting ground. Let's jump right into the convo. I know you're going to love it. So where I fear we could start, if you're game for this, is how you got here. Like what led you into this weird cross-functional world of growth to begin with? Okay, so I've been working in tech for the last maybe nine or 10 years. I can't remember which, but I've been working in tech for a while and- my last two in-house roles were marketing roles for two VC-funded B2B startups here in Atlanta, which is where I'm based. And after the second VC-funded startup that I worked for, I had a couple of options. I could go back in-house or I could take the leap into starting my own thing. And when I did, I ended up, of course, choosing to start my own thing. So I started Demand Maven. So next February will be six years. So that was 2018 February. And I started out very much demand generation focused, and it was actually in the name Demand Maven. And then the more that I grew as a person, but then also the more that I learned about the SaaS industry and how, not just how demand gen works, but also how marketing works and how growth happens in an organization, like in a SaaS company, the more I started to get into the world of growth, of looking at not just marketing growth, but the intersection between marketing, product, sales, customer success, like all of those functions. And then even more specifically, how product is really the foundational layer for the entire business's growth. And that's how it all started. But it definitely wasn't like a, you know, I left my role and I just knew exactly what I was going to do. It was something that evolved as I evolved over time. And then Demand Maven meant something different. Then it meant more of like, how do you get in demand and stay in demand? And Demand also is changing. It's a mutable thing. And it became less about demand generation and more about how do people buy? Why do people buy? What does demand mean in that, like in the supplier demand scenario, almost like economics in a way. But yeah, that's kind of the high level <laughs> journey so far. 
And do you identify as a technical marketer? I ask this because I see this pattern with these really technical analytical marketers where at a certain point they're like, I need to do more than just marketing to have the impact on the world that I want to have and on these businesses. Is that your journey or is yours something different from that? Mm, so technical marketer, that's interesting. And I think it depends on how we define it, because I think in some contexts I could say yes. In some of my earlier roles, so so before I worked for the two VC funded startups, I was running the marketing department at this consulting firm. And it was like a tech consulting firm. And we worked with big, huge enterprise companies on like website development and like custom development projects. And I learned so much of my technical chops, I actually learned from my boss. Like he taught me what a SQL or SQL database was. He taught me how to query things. And he taught me all about the more like technical aspects of analytics and marketing. But I wouldn't necessarily consider myself to be like, a, oh, I need to I don't know. I guess it depends. I don't necessarily consider myself that. Do I have technical skills? Absolutely. Could I code? No. <laughs> I can write some front end. And I know enough about how the process works to not totally lose my head in that. But I think actually really what drew me into it was actually more strategic. It was more understanding business and understanding what are the business levers to pull to grow a company beyond just get more leads. And that was when I was introduced to the five levers of growth, which is like very basic, like, how do you grow a business? And that turned into, oh, like we can pull the revenue lever and we can look at like monetization. Then there's, oh, we can pull the operations lever and get more growth by how we build and scale our teams. And so once I learned more about those things, it just was like, oh, this is really interesting. How do all these pieces work together? And that's how I expanded, so to speak. And then the more that I learned about business levers, the more that I learned specifically for a SaaS company, what are they? And then you get into, of course, acquisition, which is where most of us start on the marketing side, at least, and awareness building. But then there's also activation, monetization, retention, expansion, engagement, understanding, engagement triggers, et cetera. And so as you started to transition from a pure marketer to something more than a marketer, did that transition happen somewhat naturally just based on your instincts and your intuition and what you were interested in? 100%. 100%. It wasn't something that someone pushed me into. It was really more when I started Demand Maven and I started taking on these projects, I started seeing that everyone would always think that their problem was marketing. And to an extent, sure. Yeah. Who doesn't have a problem with marketing in some kind of way? Like who's absolutely killing it at marketing and they have no problems? No one. But the more that I would take on these clients, the more I would be like, actually, they have product issues. Actually, they have activation issues. Actually, they have engagement issues. And actually, like, maybe product market fit isn't as strong as we think. And it comes back to go to market in the end of the day. And then that just expanded into there's more than just thinking about marketing, of course, by way of growing traffic or growing leads. Then there was like, even if I were to double your funnel, you wouldn't be able to close them anyway, my dude. So like, and then it became kind of like, let's put our energy towards fixing this whole funnel issue that we have. And that was what opened up the door. And then all I needed to do was really figure out, well, how can I learn more? And how can I educate myself? And then, of course, trial by fire. So actually trying it. And in some ways, learning the hard way, but in other ways, learning in a way by standing on the shoulders of other giants. So I learned a ton from people like Sean Ellis. I learned a ton from Brian Balfour and Elliot Gill. And now we have so many incredible voices on growth, like Elena Verna. I'm like a huge fan of Elena right now. And yeah, it was natural, but it was also somewhat environmental. And also it was just what I was interested in. I, as much as I love marketing and still do, I just wanted bigger problems in a way. Not to say that marketing problems are small, 
But when you run your own business and you see how the whole pie works or how like all of these things move together, that's very exciting to me, to my brain. (laughs) I like the very large moving parts and how all of these things work together to create outcomes that are desirable. That resonates with me and I'm sure it'll resonate with listeners as well. When I started to transition out of marketing, I felt like I couldn't avoid it. It was like, there's just this bigger thing out there that we can be working on that has this bigger impact. I can't ignore it. I can't unsee it. I have to see what's on the other side of it. And so I'm sure what you share will really resonate with other folks. I think that journey is pretty common in this space. So you mentioned a few folks that have impacted your journey. I'm curious to know if there's been a pivotal person or moment that's really helped you accelerate. So there were a few people more directly in my journey, one of which you've actually had on the podcast, if I'm not mistaken, Claire Solentrop. So Claire actually was one of the very first people I talked to when I was considering starting Demand Maven. And I, she really convinced me, which is funny because like we chatted about this before. And I, and I think she would probably say that she was like very gentle convincing. But I was convinced after this, we had like a three hour coffee and a very long coffee date. And by the end of it, I felt very convinced that going and starting Demand Maven actually was, it could certainly fail, but it was actually going to be one of the most... I guess, like enlightening experiences for me to do. And I just knew, I just felt like I was going to learn more by doing that. So she was actually a a very vocal cheerleader for me in that way. And also was somewhat of an arbiter in terms of like getting me my very first clients. And so she actually really helped me get my start. And to this day, she and her business partner, Gia Laudi, are still people who I really admire and respect in the space. And then I think in terms of People who I've not been directly connected to, but have like we're operating in similar spaces. Sean Ellis with his book, Hacking Growth. Now, I know growth hackers is like, you know, depending on where you're from, it's like a bad word. I feel like in some circles and other words, it's like he literally created this platform for us to have this conversation about what growth is. And so, yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, so his book, Hacking Growth, was one of the first times where I was like, oh, cross-functional thinking is... Like there's things to be gained from that. That's beneficial. That's good for companies to do, to invest in. Of course, there's lots of requirements for that. And he talks through a lot of them. But I remember that was, that book was pretty mind blowing for me. And it was the first time too, where I had ever considered that marketing and product should actually collaborate, like for real, (laughs) which probably sounds really obvious now, but at the time, a marketer earlier in her career, that was mind blowing for me. And then I think today, people who I'm constantly learning from, even now, but Lenny Ratchetsky, I'm constantly learning about just how are other larger organizations operating and the content that he produces around this, you know, he gives us data basically about how to make decisions and about how to think about things, you know, outside of what we're used to or what we've experienced. And that's also just so enlightening for me personally. But those are some of the people I think more directly and then indirectly. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. 
Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for Delivering Value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at PostScript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppQs is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appqs.com slash value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appqs.com slash value. I'm curious to know, have you received any tough feedback along the way? This show digs into some of the speed bumps and the roadblocks and the adversity. I'm curious to know some of yours. So when I started my business, Demand Maven, of course, there was the option of going back in-house, of staying in-house. And the circumstances upon which I was coming out of the second startup, I had experienced a layoff. And the most recent one, I just... As much as I loved startups and SaaS companies, it just seemed like the ecosystem that I was in was very volatile, which jokes on me in some ways because I think it's even more volatile now, actually. (laughs) But what was so gut-wrenching was, you know, of course I could go back in-house and take another risk, or in some ways I could take a risk by starting my own business. And believe it or not, I just felt like starting Demand Maven was the best bet for me. So I told a mentor this, and a mentor that I had at the time actually encouraged me not to. And they said, I'm surprised you're starting your business. You really don't have enough experience to do that. And like, you should have gone back in house, bust your ass and then made it to VP or maybe CMO one day and then start a company. And I remember thinking like, I was crushed to hear that. I was kind of hoping that my mentor would be like, hell yeah, go do it. You know? And yeah, even if you fail, you're still going to learn a lot. So, you know, I was hoping and expecting that did not at all get that. And then felt really down about it actually. It was, and especially since I had like already incorporated by that point, <laughs> yeah, I, I already like committed this to this idea, even though I had no idea if it was going to work or not. And that was hard. It was hard to hear that I didn't have enough and, or that I might not have as much value to provide to someone. And I remember at the time also feeling very, very strongly that even if that's the case of maybe I don't have more experience than the top performers in the SaaS industry. I know for a fact I have more marketing experience than most SaaS founders out there who could use my skills. And so that was the whole premise of Demand Maven was I'm not going to be a full-time burden necessarily, but I am going to provide marketing support, at least in the early days. But yeah, that was tough to hear. And it also, in some ways, it felt personal at the time. It's taken me years actually to make peace with, it wasn't personal. It was conventional wisdom, and certainly that's the path that I think most people probably would take. You know, they would go bust their butt in a company, get promoted a bunch, get some really cool results, and then go start a company. But I, yeah, I didn't take that path. (laughs) I had a very different trajectory, but not one that was diminished, I felt. It's cool timing for this because I feel like right now there's 
an army of folks who have been laid off or at a company where their role has changed pretty substantially and they're debating this and they're feeling those things that your mentor said out loud to you, but they're saying them in their head. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough experience. There's all these other people, like some of the names you mentioned earlier in our conversation, they have more experience than me. Why would someone hire me? And so I think it's really cool timing for you to share this. Can we go back in time a little bit? Can you share who is this mentor to you? You don't have to share their name. We're not here to put anybody on blast, but what was your relationship with them prior to this point? Okay. So this was someone who I worked with at a previous company and this person actually was the one who encouraged that I go into SaaS and look at startups and like get into SaaS companies because before I, I mentioned that I worked for this, gosh, it was like a tech consulting firm and we would do these like big enterprise CMS implementations with like Sitecore and these would be one to two million dollar deal sizes and it would take one to two years to source and close and I just remember being really impatient with the sales cycle because I had the aha moment of if the sales cycle is one to two years, then the marketing cycle is that plus, which means any campaign that I run, I might not actually know if it worked or not until three or four years from now. And I just remember thinking like, I'm going to need a lifetime to work at this company to hone my craft. And so this mentor encouraged though, that I go into SaaS and startups more broadly. And I mean, I haven't even looked back that it was incredible feedback. It was incredible guidance. And throughout the years, this person has always given me, I would say, very poignant feedback, and they never held back in the best ways. And even now, I'm still so grateful for that mentor. Like, I actually think it motivated me to do even better <laughs> and to grow even beyond what I thought I was capable of. But I think that conversation was, gosh, it was literally six years ago now, and it was tough to hear. But I'm still grateful that they said something because it could have been, you know, blowing smoke up my ass or whatever and been like, oh, you're going to do great. You're going to kill it and whatever. But I'm actually glad I got that feedback as harsh as it was at the time. I still I needed to hear it, I think, in the end. But you decided not to listen to it, which is something that I didn't learn probably until the last five years working in-house, which is when you get feedback, you don't have to accept it. And so I'm curious, why didn't you, right? This is someone who you trusted, who had built you up before, who was kind of on your extended team. You kept going anyways. Why is that? So I had another mentor, actually. And so this actually, this was my previous boss. This was my last in-house boss. And they actually had a very different take on the situation. And remember, I was telling them like, okay, like I'm considering like a few in-house roles. I've got a couple of offers, but I'm also considering starting my own thing. And they were like, okay, so the typical questions, what do you want out of life? What do you want to do? Like, and I remember saying, you know, I've, I've always wanted to start my own business. I think I love the concept of entrepreneurship. And I, there's just something about running my own business that just seemed, at the time at least, like it would fortify me in a way that I hadn't been fortified before. And then also it incorporates many different moving parts. And that's really exciting to my brain. And I remember my other mentor, my previous boss, was like, okay, well, do you think you'll ever get your MBA? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And then they were like, okay, well, if you don't think you're going to get your MBA, then starting your business is about the same. So how much would an MBA at Emory University, which is a university here in Atlanta, how much would that cost? And I was like, gosh, it'd be like 180K, 200K. And they were like, okay, great. So what if you started this business, do your absolute damnedest to run it for two years, and that'll be your MBA. So you will save yourself 200K, probably take a pay cut. But at least you won't spend that six figures trying to like figure out how to do this. You could just literally learn. This is such good advice, right? Don't go learn it in an academic vacuum. You'll write a bunch of notes. You'll read a bunch of books. You'll take, you know, see a bunch of slides. Go fucking do it. I love this. 
I remember having that conversation and I was just like, oh my God, this guy, I loved him when he was my boss and I still love this guy. He's awesome. But I just remember thinking, gosh, he's so right. And so then I I thought about it some more and I was just like, you know what? I'm young. I don't have much to lose. I don't have mouths to feed or anything. It's just me and my husband doing our thing, figuring out, you know, what our paths in life are. And I thought this, if I'm going to do it, it's probably now. And I was 28, 33 now. Yeah. And then I did it. And the recruiter actually that I was using for like to source these opportunities for, because I was still considering like other offers. And I remember telling my recruiter like, hey, like I'm dropping out. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I really hate wasting anyone's time, but I really wasn't certain until now. Now that I have these offers on the table, I know for certain now that it's not these. I'm choosing Demand Maven. And I remember he was so gracious and was just like, that's incredible. I'm so happy for you. He was like, you know, I wish I had started my business years earlier. And then he gave me the best piece of advice I'd ever gotten next to, of course, you know, the MBA advice, but it was focus on invoicing. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Of course, there's value delivery in that. You know, there's all the other things that are important of like, you can't just send people invoices, but how do we get to a value moment that has the reward of getting paid basically is what he was saying. And so focusing on how to get there as quickly as possible became my mission basically for the next however many years. And here you are. <laughs> Doing what we can, but yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, you're still on the journey, right? Not, nobody's ever a finished product, but to some folks, they might look at you and think that is what success is. And so I'm curious for someone listening to this, who's at this inflection point where junior you was, where they've been laid off or they left their job because they've been unhappy for a long time. They're thinking about what to do next. They're applying to jobs. It's a tough job market right now. They're debating going in-house. They're debating starting their own thing and they're not sure what to do and they're feeling self-conscious about it. What would your advice be to that person listening? I think I do very firmly believe that if you choose the life of consulting or freelancing or whatever it is, working for yourself, it's really, really, really tough to just dip your toe into. The only real way to dip your toe into this is to have a full-time job and then start a side hustle. And that's going to work for some people, but for others like me, like I would burn out so quickly. I think for me, if you have, you know, if we're talking like runway, like if you have the runway, if you have the means to jump in, I would say go for it. Because what I have gained and what I have learned and what I've experienced in my near six years of running Demand Maven, it's been my MBA like five times over. And that's an experience that I've wanted. I've craved that experience. But the people I've met, the connections I've made, the experiences I've gained, the knowledge I've gained, the wisdom I've gained, the shit that I've seen, like it just couldn't have compared if I had stayed at one place for the last six years or if I had you know, left every three years to go to another place. Don't get me wrong. Experience always compounds. And I'm not knocking anyone who chooses that life. I think that's great. But I just think it's got to be for you. And I think if you're interested in working for yourself, being your own boss, it is an exorbitant amount of work and energy. But the reward to me, I can't imagine life in any other way. But what I will say, though, is for anyone who's considering it, I do think it's kind of hard to dip your toe into unless you can side hustle you know, on the side, but I think that that's so tough too. <laughs> I think it's really tough to do on the side. Yeah, I totally agree. And I know how some people do it. I think some people just, they really do put in the weekends, they put in the nights. I like sleep and I like time off and I like creative time, not doing work. So like I said, it's not gonna work for everyone, but someone I know is, she's starting her freelance journey now. And she's like, how do I do this? And I'm just like, commit to it. 
actually commit yourself to it and it will work out in theory, you know, no promises, but one foot in, one foot out. Yeah, I just don't think it works as easily. You got a cannonball at some point or another. <laughs> like you either decide you're going to commit at least a year or two. The advice I was told was commit to this for two years and then decide if it's for you or not. But hope that helps. <laughs> do you think you're unemployable at this point? That's one of the other questions that I'll get from folks is they're like, well, I go off and I do my own thing and I'm an advisor for two years or whatever. I'll be so far removed from doing the work that I won't be employable. What do you think about that? No, you're not unemployable. You're just employable for different tiers of work and employable for different even industries or verticals of work. So I'm absolutely not unemployable as much as I would like to believe I am. I'm absolutely not. I know for a fact that if I were like, you know what, I'm done with Demand Maven. I think I should go and be a chief strategy officer, or I think I should go and be a CEO somewhere. I know for a fact I could do it. And I also know for a fact too, that my entrepreneurship and my founder experience and also the breadth of my experience only makes that more appealing. I don't think it detracts or takes away. Like I know what it looks like to manage the finances for a business because I literally did it. A P&L is not beyond me. You know what I mean? Like, like there are skills that you gain that are highly applicable to future executive leadership roles. So no, I th actually think if anything, you probably are better primed maybe than some other candidates. And also too, the network that you gain from this type of work, no matter what you do, is just, it's worth its weight in gold. But if I were to, even 15 years from now, April Dunford actually comes to mind. You know, April Dunford has been VP of marketing and CMO, I think like, what, eight or nine times over. She's even been CEO, I think twice or something like that. And even at her level, like she still gets job offers, 100%. Sometimes I think about this as like a video game and there are certain moments that unlock new levels. I'm actually not a video gamer, so I don't know why this analogy clicks in my mind, but it does. And so... What I'm hearing you say is that it just unlocks new levels. Yeah, you might not go back to being whatever you were before. You would unlock this new potential thing and you could play at that level. And that could be really fun and fulfilling. And you'd have all kinds of new characters that would help you succeed at that level. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. Totally. And the thing about any type of personal growth journey is that those other levels, they're not always going to be perceivable to you. For example, I didn't even think or conceive of the possibility that I could serve as a board member at Moz, that I would be the one to take Rand Fishkin's seat. Like that had like that wasn't a space I would have bet on. And it just showed me that there are opportunities even outside of the realm of perceivable opportunities that you just might not even be aware of or know of. And it doesn't even occur to you until it's like on your door. So you, I would never underestimate what the universe might bring to you in that way. Mm. I like that perspective. For folks who are listening to this and thinking, hey, I don't know if the universe has that much faith in me, or I don't know if the universe is presenting me with those opportunities. I'm curious if you could share another low point in your journey to this point to normalize some of the challenges that folks face getting from wherever you start to wherever you might be today. So the lowest point in my career, there's actually two moments I can think of. There's pre-Demand Maven and then there's during Demand Maven, which Every founder also has those too. But I would say before I started my company, so this was my first startup role. It was, the configuration was kind of interesting because they had a SaaS, but then within the organization, they had a smaller business unit, had its own like PL, like its own everything. And it was a community that ran conferences. And so I was demand gen for the conference. And I would say the lowest point was actually as I was exiting that role. It, it was actually a very psychologically traumatic experience. The way that this company thought 
it prioritized execution and like hustle muscle and it really valued overwork and reaching goals without ever considering like strategically how to get there. But the other thing that it valued though was it also valued setting goals and milestones that were just mathematically impossible to reach. Like there was no physical way of reaching certain goals. And I remember leaving, well, so my first day at this job, I actually learned that the boss that I had at the time uh, signed this agreement that was like, we are contractually obligated to make like 300K in revenue or something like that to pay some other company because of some like deal that happened and, you know, that happened like months before I joined. So my first day, I find out that I'm actually on the hook for generating 300K in revenue minimum. The stretch goal, putting this in finger quotes, was like 500 or 600K. And so I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. So you guys probably have done this before then. You've probably got like a predictable revenue model. Let's see it. How does it go? Turns out that they did not have that at all. And on top of that, they only generated 1.5K in sales. So we had to go from 1.5K to 600, the stretch goal, 300 minimum in two months. I joined in December and we needed to realize this revenue and profits by end of February. So what, sorry to interrupt you, what goes through your mind when that happens? It's going to be people listening to this who are starting new roles that have experienced some shit like this, where you get in and you're kind of like, ah, fuck, this doesn't feel good. Like what went through your mind? At first, because this was me being inexperienced and relatively naive, at first I thought, maybe it's me. It's I'm the problem. I'm not thinking big enough. And I also remember thinking, this number's not real. <laughs> like there's no way this is real. And this was weeks. Weeks later, I started thinking, I did not ask enough questions in my interview. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably yeah, relatable. I really didn't ask enough questions in this interview because I just would not have taken this job if I had known. But to be fair, they, there's no way they would have told me, not for real anyway. I think that I have my theories, but there's no way they would have told me that because I would have run away. Like I would have been like, no, <laughs> heck no. So it took me months to actually undo this feeling of responsibility that I had around that role and that goal in particular. Hold on, before we keep going, did you, how long did you stay at this company? Did you leave shortly after that? Uh, I was there for about six, six, seven months. And I wasn't there for a super long time, but it was definitely clear that my role staying at the company was contingent on us meeting that goal. This completely unattainable, impossible goal that had no predictable model, had never been done before. I think the business unit had literally made maybe 100K in the previous years, and they wanted to like five, six exit because that's what high growth companies do. We just five and six X everything. <laughs> and we already told the board and it's in the spreadsheet. Yep. And I've already signed that agreement or whatever that said I had to. And it, it was totally a mess. But it took a long time for me to realize that it wasn't me. And in some ways, it wasn't even my boss. My boss was under the same pressure that I was in a way. It was just this really unfortunate way that this company chose to run. And I was in the crossfire. And it didn't, it didn't no, don't get me wrong, it took me like a lot of therapy. I was going to ask, how did you get there? Because I talked to folks who get stuck there. Yeah, I did a lot of therapy and I did a lot of telling of the story. So I, I told the story to a few other people that I trusted in this space. And every single one of them was like, oh, honey, that is not you. This isn't your fault. Do you know what questions to ask now if you were to ever go back in-house? Absolutely. <laughs> but even then, there was so much unpacking that I had to do with myself and therapy, but, then, but also with other people that I really trusted. And so 
There were several other friends and mentors as well, previous mentors, current mentors, and old friends, new friends who have all validated that experience for me, but then also shared their own stories of just absolute craziness. So what I will say is I got to 80K, definitely didn't get to 600 at all, but I still did way more than what I thought was possible given the budget, the constraints that I had, the time. And I just remember thinking like, I remember at the time, yeah, I just thought it was all me. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. And then over months and then several years later, I started to realize more and more, oh, actually, that had nothing to do with me. There was no way anyone was going to be successful doing that. (laughs) So once I realized, oh, this isn't on me, that's when the healing process began. It took a lot. I'm not going to lie. And I think also, too, because I'm an achiever naturally and I want to achieve my goals, And when I can't reach them because of circumstances beyond my control, it's crushing. And I take so much personal responsibility when really that's not for me to shoulder. And that's taken a lot of personal growth to realize like what is actually like what am I actually truly accountable for versus not. But anyway, that was my lowest point and how I came out of it. And what's your advice for someone who's in it right now? They're in a similar position. They're working somewhere. Something either isn't going well or there's some totally crazy goal, but they're not sure if it's them or if it's the situation. Because it's something that I heard you say you got with the benefit of perspective. But if someone is in it right now, how could they get that perspective? This is where I think two things come into play. I think communities and community can be represented in many different ways. Of course, there's Slack. But then there's also conferences, like where are the places where you can go have a beer, tell someone your story, get their thoughts, get their feedback, get their honest, especially if you have a relationship and trust them. How can you get that insight that you would need? And also just that very honest gut check. And I've actually told stories before where I didn't tell the story as if it were me. I told it as if I were like a third person omniscient because sometimes, you know, you want to get feedback on something, but no one wants to tell you to your face that that's dumb or (laughs) or you suck, whatever. So you tell it about someone else, but it's your story. You're just omitting yourself from the picture and placing someone else. So I have a friend who's experiencing this challenge in their business and they're doing this and this and blah, blah, blah. And then like, what do you think about that? Like, is that a terrible idea? But I think in really trusted circles, yeah, if you can cultivate that for yourself, that's where I would go to first. I think the second is I'm a huge fan of training and courses and learning. Part of it is being a course junkie like I am. A lot of it is honestly research. Like I like seeing what are people packaging and selling. It's almost like it's like product research basically for me. But then the other part of it is when I get something really good, I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. And There are a lot of things that I'm like, okay, yeah, like I got that. But there's also a lot of stuff that I'm like, oh, that's new. That's interesting. I haven't considered it that way before. I wonder how we can apply that to the work that we're doing. And I think learning from others in that way can also be really eye-opening in terms of what you might be missing from what you're doing. But I will generally say like between community versus learning education, it's people and then the materials that people create, I think at the end of the day. And then all the stuff outside of that, I think it's more mindset. So I have a business coach. And I think depending on the work that you're doing, depending on the level of work that you're doing, having either an executive coach or like a leadership coach of some kind would be incredibly valuable. But really, he helps me the most with mindset. Mindset is the biggest thing, because I think sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. And even if we are mucking something up and it's like, we don't know what we don't know, but at the same exact time, we're smart enough to know how to know. So then it's just like uh, getting out of your own way 
in a way. That happens to me a lot where even if I don't know exactly what to do in my business or exactly like how to solve a problem that I'm facing for a client or whatever it is, I know how to know. Then I just have to get out of my own way and kind of let that process take over. That's something that I have struggled with for many, many years. I think you talked about it as like the unknown unknowns. Is that kind of how I heard you say it? Yeah, yeah. So I think that for me, I would get stuck in patterns, worrying about things that hadn't happened that I thought might happen, but I wasn't sure if I had all the information to avoid it happening. Is that what it manifests for you or does it look a little different? I think for me, the things that stress me out the most are the unknown unknowns. So the stuff that you know, you know, you, you can handle that. The stuff that you know that you don't know, you can learn. The stuff that you don't know and can't conceive of knowing, that's the stuff that stresses me out. And sometimes so much so that I it like blocks me from taking action. And I don't think that this is the case for everyone. I think a lot of <laughs> something tells me that there are some people out there that are, that are like, I don't have any problem with that at all. I just move through space and time, always optimistic. And I'm the total opposite. I, I expect things to not necessarily do that. And is there a category of unknowns that gives you more grief than others? Well, from like a business perspective, it's legal and all the stuff that I might have to pay like a bunch of money and fines for that I don't even know about or can conceive of because my risk tolerance is just high enough that I don't spend energy worrying about those things. But I was actually talking with Rob Walling just this past week, actually, at a conference, and we were talking about risk tolerance. And his risk tolerance varied depending on the company he was running. And when it was at Drip, it was at a certain level. When it's at Microconf or TinySeed, it's at different varying levels. And we were joking about how as you mature in your business, your risk tolerance for certain things changes. And you have to be emotionally and physically and also financially prepared for when that does happen. But those are the types of things that like as a marketer and person who is doing more growth work now, like legal is not a thing I think about really. <laughs> Just not. And on the consulting side with client work, there's always the business model that I might not have experienced yet myself. So I would think like marketplaces are relatively familiar, but there are some people who we work with or some businesses, I should say, that we work with where they're like part marketplace, part something else and part something else. And it's like, okay, one of these takes priority and I've got to figure out which one it is. And then it's also like, okay, well, when we think about growth for this, these frameworks or these ways of thinking about it might not fit perfectly. And so then it's like the, those are the types of unknown unknowns where we just have to take them as we go. It's not like a perfect formula or anything to apply to them. I was going to ask if and when you encounter one of these and you find yourself ruminating and getting stuck and sort of going through the washer cycle of thoughts, what do you do to break that pattern? I can tell you my therapist answer and then I'll tell you what actually probably happens in real life. So my therapist answer is, well, if you meditate, <laughs> you'll be aware of those thoughts. And this is actually true for me. So I can tell when I am on my meditation game, because when I have those ruminating thoughts, I'm able to break the cycle and I'm say, I'm ruminating. And if you're an achiever out there listening, you probably know the feeling of obsessive thinking of like, how do I fix this KPI? Or how do I accomplish this goal? Or like, well, and you just like ruminate and you just like turn those wheels. And sometimes that is productive. And sometimes it is unproductive. And I think the more that you are really attuned to just like your own personal energy levels and just yourself in general, the more you'll be able to discern, is this productive rumination or is this unproductive rumination? 
usually when I personally am ruminating, it's usually because I have unresolved thinking loops or patterns. I usually take it to paper at that point. That's when I start writing. If I can get it down on paper, it doesn't matter where it is, just somewhere, that usually stops it. And then it actually usually becomes very clear like, oh, this is what my gap is. Or, oh, this is what my next question is after that. I do that too. Sometimes I'll find myself circling something because I don't want to forget it. Or like I'll finally figure something out or something that could be. And I'm like, oh shit, I don't want to forget that. So I'll keep replaying it in my mind. It's like, you got to get it out. And that's a great tip for anybody listening. If you could go back in time, what is one skill you wished you worked on earlier in your career? That's easy. Product. Why do you say that? I say that because I actually think (laughs) if I hadn't have gone into marketing, I would have gone into product. Part of that is because when I think about all of my previous roles in marketing, when I was in-house, I was so disconnected from product in general. So much of marketing was about generate the lead, generate the traffic. And it was that obsessive focus of like, okay, I'm going to do that. And The more that I have matured in my own personal growth journey with growing SaaS companies, the more that I have learned that actually it's not just the marketing acquisition story that we're telling. We're also telling the retention and the activation story. And in order to tell that story, we need a very deep understanding of product, not just what the product is, but also how does the business make decisions on what to build versus not. Those are strategic trade-offs that most founders and leaders and growth teams don't realize that they're making. And sometimes it's a very real present choice, but a lot of times it's not. Sometimes it's like, well, the customer asked for this or enough customers asked for this, so we're just going to build it. And I have seen way too many companies, even client, like in the work that I do at Demand Maven, I've seen way too many companies jump on the build trap train. They just build and build. They never really question what trade-offs are we making by building these things. And also, is this actually improving retention? Is this actually improving engagement? And also, what's the strategy to get people to engage once we build the thing? That is the type of strategic thinking and decision-making and work that I think I would have really, really, really loved early in my career. But then also, even if I had decided to stay on the marketing path, it would have just made me an even more powerful marketer. Product marketing is a role and a function that most teams don't introduce until much later in their growth journey. But I actually think product marketing is, it's just such a crucial function when it comes to -to go-to-market. And it is so overlooked, I think, in the earlier days because the emphasis is on leads and traffic. And sure, yes, of course, fair, fine, like you need that in the early days. Of course, like you should focus on, you know, getting as many customers as fast as possible. But I think in order to create a sustainable business, we have to have that intersection. So that's why I say product. And also, too, I think really understanding, kind of going back to being like a technical marketer, understanding how product is made, how those decisions are made, how engineering and development teams plan those processes, sprints, actually get things built. All of that also plays into how the business grows, because if that's not efficient or effective, then it could take you six months to build something. And by that time, you've already lost half of your customer base because your retention is not good. So that's the type of stuff that can easily undercut marketing so quickly, where it's like, it doesn't even matter what I do. If this isn't working well, then like this whole ship doesn't really go forward. But no, I think I do wonder, I probably would have been a product manager if I hadn't have gone the marketing route. Love that. Great advice. And for folks who are listening, they just want more of you. How can they interact with you? Where can they follow you? Where should we send them? So I'm going to say LinkedIn for sure. 
Uh, and if you reach out, if you connect with me on LinkedIn, just make sure that you say that, you know, you heard me on the podcast just so I know who you are. And then also there is the work newsletter. So I just started this new newsletter. It's called The Work. And the whole goal and mission of the work is to debunk myths whenever it comes to doing the hard work of growing SaaS companies. And I touch on many different topics, everything from research to product to marketing to, of course, more growth specific topics and just sharing what I've learned along my journey. I publish every week. So that's another really great way to keep hearing from me. And I still lurk on Twitter. So you can follow me there, too. Thank you for coming on, sharing some of your story and your journey. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise... Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.